0: This is the New South Wales Country Hour with Kim
1: Honan on ABC New South Wales.
2: Welcome to the Country Hour. Kim Honan in the chair for Michael Condon today. Coming up in the next hour, horticultural exporters and importers say that the ongoing port dispute is costing the sector millions. Australia has taken out one of the largest meat judging comps in the U.S., And we'll meet the coach from new south wales and fig season has started on the north coast
1: they're a good size Uh, the weather's been kind to us i think we've had something like four to five inches over the last few weeks since the beginning of the year that hasn't affected them
2: and sheep and lamb prices in the states north double what they were a month ago you can text me today on 0467 Nine double two six six eight four. That's zero four six seven nine double two six eight four. Well, first up today, Scott Hanson will step down today as director general of the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries after nearly 10 years in the role. Prior to taking up the position in 2014, he was the Managing Director of Meat and Livestock Australia. A spokesperson for the Department of Regional New South Wales says that the Secretary of the Department has made changes to the leadership arrangements at the Department of Primary Industries and that Mr Hansen will depart from his role as Director General Effective from today friday the 19th of january the spokesperson says the department thanks mr hanson for his service and significant commitment through some of the toughest conditions new south wales primary producers And our regional communities have faced during the past 10 years. The Department of Regional New South Wales remains committed to delivering high quality services to primary industries across regional New South Wales and will look to bolster leadership for primary industries over the coming months. The spokesperson says that Sean Sloan, the current Deputy Director General Fisheries, will act in the role on an interim basis. Well, I spoke to the New South Wales Nationals leader, Dougald Saunders, a short time ago about the news of Scott Hansen's departure from the Director-General role.
3: Yeah, look, a little bit of a shock, um, but in some ways possibly something that um, a few of us had expected at some point in time. Um, But Scott has been, if not the, one of the best and most well-regarded public servants I think that New South Wales has probably ever seen. And... I think most people I've spoken to today in the last hour or so have all been um, slightly shocked Um, and I I guess wondering where this leaves the DPI and where this leaves uh, agriculture in New South Wales when somebody with such a broad wealth of experience um, and impact uh, will no longer be at the top.
2: And do you have any idea why he has stepped down from this role after 10 years?
3: Look, I don't know exactly the reasons, um, but one of the things I guess myself, and in fact many people I think across New South Wales are concerned about, is the decision that the Department of Regional is taking around a functional review of all parts of not only it, but other departments like um, the DPI. So uh, I'm not sure whether that's played a role at all, and I'm not gonna speculate that it did, but that functional review is definitely putting pressure on a number of uh, people in middle and upper management, and I think also just staff in general. Um, The concern that we've had, and, and I started voicing this concern straight after the budget, was the Department of Regional itself was looking at contracting. And as part of that, the DPI and a focus on agriculture is definitely being impacted and targeted as well. And perhaps, Um, This is the first step on a really slippery slope for all of regional New South Wales and particularly for agriculture, which is dreadful.
2: And what sort of impact do you see that Scott Hansen has had on the state's agricultural and fisheries sector over the last decade?
3: Look, it's been immense. I've obviously had the the privilege of working very closely with Scott for um, over a year when I was the Minister for Agriculture in Western New South Wales and... I remember um, meeting Scott and, and discussing the portfolio. It was, it was Christmas Eve, actually. He came to Dubbo and and we had a good catch up about some of the priorities. And, and right from that first moment of discussing where things were at and where we both thought they needed to go, I knew um, I'd found a bloke that was really trustworthy and, and whose advice I would be absolutely willing to take and, and work with. And from that moment as well, we, we both agreed that biosecurity was the number one thing in 2022 and it certainly um it certainly shaped up and proved to be the case with uh, varroa mite with threats of foot and mouth disease lumpy skin disease the african swine flu it was just a constant biosecurity threat and the work that uh that scott did at the top but also with people like john tracy uh, and the rest of the team was incredible and scott was never um never one to, to sort of take the limelight but was always there to provide sage advice um, and help when it was required and i think that's the that's the point he was somebody that would uh talk to anyone was happy to share his experience was happy to provide guidance but also um if he didn't quite with with what maybe was happening at that point in time he, he would make it happen how you needed it to so um an incredible uh public servant an incredible knowledge of agriculture uh, and, and I'm, I'm sure that scott will continue to uh, help serve people in the future whatever that may look like for him he's got an incredible brain and uh, a great way of being able to, to get people together and come up with uh, really significant outcomes
2: there's dougald Saunders leader of the new south wales nationals on the departure of scott hansen from the role of Director-General of the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries today. New South Wales Farmers, a spokesperson, says that uh, New South Wales Farmers thanks Scott Hanson for his significant role in growing the value of agriculture from $11.8 billion to more than $21 billion over the past decade. With a focus on productivity, research and development and biosecurity, Scott's dedicated work has been of benefit not only to farmers, but the state as a whole. New South Wales farmers say they wish Scott all the best for his future public and private endeavours. It's 12 past one on The Contrary Hour.
4: You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales.
2: Well, an Australian of the Year finalist divested shares in an abattoir owned by herself and her husband in the wake of animal welfare issues. Fiona Breen spoke to ABC News reporter Lucy McDonald to find out more.
5: So Fiona, Stephanie Trithui is the former Australian Rural Woman of the Year. She's the founder of online rural mothers group Motherland, an online community connecting rural mothers and is Tasmania's Australian of the Year for 2024. This means she's in the running for the national title. Now, while she's waiting to see if she'll claim the country's top gong, she says she's found herself the target of animal activists over a company she says she's had no operational involvement in. Now, it comes back to September when animal activists from the Farm Transparency Project installed hidden cameras inside the local meat co. Now, that's an abattoir based in northwest of Tasmania that was then co-owned by Ms Trithui and her husband, Sam. Now, in early December, the vision was released showing workers at the Sheffield Abattoir roughly handling animals. You know, you can see them throwing and punching sheep. And an expert familiar with abattoirs also told the ABC they had concerns about the facility's design and equipment. The abattoir, along with several others, is now under investigation by the state's Department of Natural Resources and Environment. So, Lucy, has there been a response from the Trithuys yet? There's a statement on their website that's been up there since December 22nd. Um, Local Meat Co. described the illegally tamed footage as unacceptable and they also condemned all mistreatment of animals. The company also said it's upgraded the facility, fired two workers and addressed biosecurity officers' concerns. So that's the facility. What else did the Trithuys have to say? So, look, at the end of that statement, uh, there's this claim that there have been historical inaccuracies in the media reporting to date. Now, I'm just going to read a quote from that, which says, They include in falsely naming someone as an owner of the local meat coat who is not an owner or shareholder, as evidenced via an ASIC search. Ms Trithui has since denied having operational involvement with the company, instead describing herself on social media as a former minority shareholder. But according to ASIC records, until December, a company named SST & Co. was the sole shareholder of Local Meat Co. Now, SST & Co. is owned by Ms Trithui and her husband, Sam. On December 11th, 7 News Tasmania aired the footage taken inside local meat co and named Ms Trithui as a co-owner. Now, ASIC documents show that just three days later, SST & Co. submitted documents notifying ASIC that it divested its shares in Local Meat Co., with Mr Trithui's husband, Sam, becoming the sole shareholder. But that change was listed as having occurred on December 1st. Well, wow, there's a lot to it. So tell me, what else has happened since all this came about? So, shares aren't the only changes. We've also seen um, changes to the website. Now, earlier versions refer to Local Meat Co. as being family-owned and run by Sam and Stephanie Trethui. The current website has removed those references to the couple and the phrase family-owned. Mr. Duthuis also addressed the issue on Instagram. She said, again, she's never been involved in the business operationally and described herself as a minority shareholder until December and says she's no longer a part owner. But she's pointed out that her name and only hers has been dragged through the mud with Australian of the Year as the hook. She also says she's had to switch her personal account and motherlands to private because she's become the target of what she calls truly disgusting animal activists. Um, She said she's received death threats, been bullied, and has even closed off comments on their other farming business and is genuinely concerned for the family's safety. So what did Steph Trithui say when the ABC contacted her for comment? Look, she said it was already a matter of public record, that she was a part owner until December. She says the business was leased as a family, but even then she didn't have any management or operational involvement. She said it was when the issues were raised around animal welfare that they decided to remove her from the ownership to reflect the reality. Uh, she also said she'd been strained under social media criticism, describing the situation as personally taxing at a time when she was trying to be a proud representative of Tasmania.
2: And that was ABC News' Lucy McDonald reporting there. She was speaking to rural reporter Fiona Breen. And for more on that story, hop onto the ABC Rural online page to look at the story about Australian of the Year nominee Stephanie Trethui divesting shares in the local meat co-abattoir following animal welfare issues. It's 17 past one on the country. Our Kim Honan with you today. Well, New South Wales has played a key part in Australia taking out one of the largest meat judging competitions in the United States. Mackie Lawrence, who grew up on a beef cattle property in the upper Maclay Valley, coached the team to victory along with fellow coach Molly Greentree. The Australian Intercollegiate Meat Judging Association team this week was named National Division Champions at the National Western Meat Judging Competition in Denver, Colorado, and on the team of five university students from across Australia, Georgie Laurie from Gloucester and Angus Barter from Griffith. The team is still in the U.S. on a red meat industry tour, visiting a number of major beef processing plants, Feedlots, ranches, and retail operations, and I caught up with Mackie Lawrence earlier today for the Country Hour.
6: It's part of an organisation uh, called ICMJ and basically we're all about encouraging young people and exposing them to careers in the red meat industry. And basically, this is a this is a small part of our program, but uh, yeah, it was very very pleasing to win the win the Denver contest at the National Western um, Stock Show. So basically. Um, we flew in early January and uh, had a bit of training throughout the US, and uh, yeah, had the National Western Sock Show uh, competition on Sunday. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a three week long industry tour. So now, now we're going out to industry and and um, visiting sort of ranches and feedlots and exposing these guys to the to the US industry.
2: What an exciting opportunity for yourself and those students involved!
6: Yeah, yeah, it's it's phenomenal. I um I was lucky enough to get the opportunity back in twenty seventeen as a student and uh, now now I'm lucky enough to give back to the program from a from a coaching perspective which is which is really nice.
2: And what's involved in preparing for it and taking out the national Western meat judging competition in Colorado?
6: Yeah, so it's um it's quite a quite a different system over here. We um the guys did a national comp at Wagga uh, last year in July. And now, basically, we come over and have a very short period to try and adjust to the U.S. grading system. And uh, there's numerous different classes throughout the competition. And, and basically, we, we try and adapt to, to their yield and, and quality grading and, uh, basically, how they, how they grade their animals over here in the U.S.
2: And how yeah. different is the grading system?
7: Um, it's, it's not
6: completely different. Uh, they just have sort of different priorities based on their, based on their consumer demands. Um so yeah basically at the end of the day it's it's true what they say when when the consumer is the key um, it does have its similarities, but it also it's its differences at the same time.
2: So what is it that the u s consumer is after? what uh, makes it a good piece of meat to them? Uh,
6: predominantly being a being a grain fed industry um, they they feed a lot of their cattle throughout feedlots. and basically uh, I'm not sure of the figures, but um, a lot of their a lot of their proportion um, of beef is, is put through a feedlot. So that's sort of the, the major difference between our Australian industry being pasture fed based versus, versus their feedlots. Yeah.
2: And how long have you been involved in meat judging Mackie? What was your path to, to coaching the Australian team this year?
6: Yeah. So, um, as I said a bit earlier, I competed at Wagga in 2016 and then, and then I was lucky enough to, to come to America in 2017. And, uh, I worked in industry for a couple of years and got a bit of experience under my belt and, and uh, yeah, I was fortunate enough to, to join the committee um, last year and, and now this year I've sort of transitioned into the into the U.S. coach um, and along with another coach, Molly Greentree.
2: You've worked right across the, the sector, it seems, from the, the family beef farm um, to working as a butcher to working in a feedlot. You've really seen it all.
6: Yeah, yeah, I've um, I've been very, very lucky and and I, I I have a very big passion for the Australian red meat industry, especially. And, uh, yeah, I've just been very fortunate, um, along my, along my childhood years and, and yeah, just been exposed to the, to the right people and the right networks and it all sort of flows from there.
2: Yeah. So it wasn't just the, the beef, uh, section that the team excelled in, but you picked up second in pork judging as well, I believe.
6: Yeah. So we, we judged beef, pork and lamb and, uh, yeah the guys really excelled across across all those three areas which is which is really good to see and i think it i think it reflects the sort of the ICMJ program in that we're really good in exposing them to all those different industries back in australia and and uh yeah it sort of goes from there
2: so you picked up first in beef grading second in pork judging second in beef judging but won the overall national division title
6: yes yeah correct yeah it's um it was it was a uh, it was a very nice surprise to um to take out beef grading, especially just because of the, the different system and and converting things over to uh, the US metrics such as square inches and so forth. Yeah, no, it was really good.
2: Enjoy the rest of your trip and congratulations. Yeah, thanks, Kim. Yeah, thank you. That is Mackie Lawrence, coach of the Australian ICMJ team, which won the National Division titles at the National Western Meat Judging Comp in Colorado. And uh, they're continuing their tour until uh, next week and then heading back to Australia. And Mackie is currently working for Growth Farms Australia on a property at Telangada in Victoria, but uh, grew up on a family beef farm in the Upper Maclay Valley on the state's mid-north coast, it's 23 past one on the Country Hour.
8: Don't let the cuteness fool you. Come
4: on, puppies. A new litter of mustard dogs are setting to work. Five Australian border collie pups. Can't help the life, eh? Five ambitious stock handlers.
7: Our trainers have got their work cut out for them.
4: Who will rise to the challenge
2: and become the new champion? You look after me and I'll look after you. A brand new season of Mustard Dogs. <laughs> Sunday nights on ABC TV and stream all episodes on ABC iView. It's uh, pretty quiet on the text line. You can throw me a text on 0467 922 0467 922 Six eight four. Well, Australia's largest and biggest cotton ginning company is set to be transferred into international hands. In a letter to the Australian Stock Exchange today, Nemoy Cotton announced it had entered into a scheme implementation agreement with the Singapore-based Louis Dreyfus Company. Nemoy Cotton Chief Executive Tim Watson says the arrangement will see LDC take on the remaining 83% of shares in Nemoy Cotton it does not yet own. He's speaking here with Brandon Long.
0: So we've signed what's called a, an SIA or a Scheme Implementation Agreement. In layman's terms, that's a binding contract. So that that binds both ourselves, Emily Cotton, and Louis Dreyfus uh, to proceed further.
9: What due diligence had to be completed for, for this? Louis Dreyfus
0: ran an exhaustive due diligence process and I'd safe to say there's probably not a stone left unturned. And I think that's just a big company being cautious uh, about any acquisition that they make, wherever it may be. So um, the pleasing thing out of it all is it was exactly what we portrayed to them and they, after running through uh, Namo and Cotton with a fine-tooth comb, it was exactly as we'd um, originally told them and exactly what we'd put up to them in the first place, and they're more than happy with. They're actually really pleasantly surprised with, uh, with what they found when they looked under the bonnet.
9: So what's the next step? Does it still need to go to a, a vote with the shareholders?
0: Yeah, look, it's quite a process. So the next step is uh, there is an uh, ACCC submission. There's a FERB submission. So the Foreign Investment Review Board, whilst you never know, you can't predict that, we don't expect any uh, major hurdles there, but it'll, that's up to the ACCC and that's up to Ferb to um, opine on that. From our side, from the Damois side, we've got to get an independent expert. Uh, we then go to the court. If the judge says that they're all happy, he or she will give us the um, go ahead to proceed to a shareholder meeting. Anticipate that to be in uh, April, May, assuming the shareholders, or if they um, vote in favour of the deal, which our major share shareholders, Samuel Terry, asset uh, management, have, um, have already indicated they're supportive and so have other major shareholders. That then goes back to the judge.
9: Moving to uh, so a slightly different topic how's the uh, upcoming ginning season looking for you we're
0: gearing up now we're full on with maintenance of all the gins getting them ready it's all on target to be ready for the the ginning season where you know with this ra- recent rain that's been happening from mid-december some of the dryland cod well, all of the cotton that i've seen i was down at uh, we during the week it looks unbelievable crops that i saw look fantastic and talking to a few people, they've echoed that they've got some of the best-looking cotton they've seen for some time. And the dry land, as we know, if you get a hot January, it can be pretty tough at this time of the year. But with all the recent rain, it's effectively going like an irrigated crop. So if that rain continues on for another month, uh, look out for the dry land the cotton. That'll be huge.
9: Could you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the new gin um, that's being constructed at Kununurra? Uh, what's, what's your role in it and, and where is it up to?
0: Namoi, um, we're a joint uh, shareholder in the uh, Kimberley Cotton Company, KCC, and we're also uh, the project manager so we we're supplying the project manager who's a, uh, an ammo employee which we're contracting out to kcc so we're our guys running the project our key goal was to get the foundations done prior to the wet season and that's happened the concrete uh, so all the shed the footings effectively and the main part of the below ground concrete work and they've, they're a fair way ahead with the above ground concrete concrete work so Nothing's happening there at the moment. Uh, we anticipate early March to kick off again.
2: That is Nemoy Cotton Chief Executive Tim Watson speaking there to Brandon Long. Kim Honan with you for the Country Hour today. A lot more to come in the next half hour. We'll catch up with a couple of uh, farmers about the start of fig season and harvest on the North Coast. And we'll hear from the Horticultural Exporters and Importers Association about what impact the ongoing dispute is having on the sector. The chairman says that it's costing millions of dollars. But uh, let's head to the newsroom and with the latest is Adam Story. Good afternoon. Good
10: afternoon. Kim. Kim. Sorry, I'm hearing myself back there. Just one second. Economists uh, tipping the Reserve Bank uh, will start making cuts to interest rates in the second half of this year. That's after the jobs data released yesterday showed that the unemployment rate, while uh, while holding steady at 3.9 percent, uh, there were actually 65,000 jobs lost, and it was the participation rate, uh, a drop in the participation rate, that actually kept the unemployment rate down at uh, 3.9. Uh, meanwhile, in uh, the dispute between DP World and uh, the Maritime Union continues. And today, uh, the head of the Australian Industry Group uh, has hit out of the workplace relations minister uh, over his handling of the dispute. Yesterday, Tony Burke accused the operator of acting in bad faith over negotiations, saying the company had put more effort into a media strategy than resolving the dispute. Uh, but the chief executive of the AI group, Innes Willocks, has accused the minister of uh, going in for personal abuse uh, when dealing with CEOs and says he has a track record of that. Uh, a woman is being airlifted or has been airlifted to hospital after being bitten by a snake on a remote beach at Pittwater north of Sydney. Uh, the paramedics actually were taken by a police boat to Great Mackerel Beach around half past ten this morning and they treated the woman for puncture wounds to her leg. They're trying to determine if the snake was venomous. And Australia has a new coach uh, for the Rugby Union team. Joe Smith will uh, take over the head coaching role of the Wallabies. The New Zealander spent six years as Ireland's coach where he led them to uh, six Three Nations titles and the world number one ranking for the first time. And he was also the assistant coach for the All Blacks at last year's Rugby World Cup. And the cricket now heads to Brisbane next week after Australia's 10-wicket victory this afternoon over the West Indies in Adelaide. That begins at the Gabba on Thursday and that's actually a day night uh test match which will be interesting and that's uh that's my lot kim
2: <laughs> have a lovely weekend i
10: will give it a shot
2: cheers that is adam story with the news headlines there kim honer with you on the country Owl. let's get the latest on the weather uh good afternoon dylan bird at the bureau of meteorology
8: good afternoon kim how are you
2: i'm um, good thank you what's the situation looking like across the the state today and across the weekend
8: yeah so today uh pretty much uh, dry and uh, clear skies in many places, a bit of high cloud around, but other than that, uh, generally settled weather. However, um, there is a risk of uh, uh, thunderstorms across um, the far northeast border of uh, the northern Tablelands and into the northern rivers, um, with a a slight risk of maybe some um, severe thunderstorms just on the Queensland border in the far east, um, with maybe some heavy rainfall and some flash flooding is possible there. Otherwise... um, Fairly quiet for the rest of the state, with that subtly change that moves through yesterday, um, stabilising things. Looks like over the weekend we could see um, uh, a con- continuation of uh, thunderstorm activity over uh, the northern parts. Um, so tomorrow's more or less, over the northwest slopes and plains areas, um, and then um, on Sunday it pushes back into the northeast and near the coast, um, with a inland trough moving eastwards on Sunday. Um, and then a bit more of a northerly flow over the state, uh, bringing hot temperatures inland and to the coast.
2: And any warnings uh, current, uh, Dylan?
8: Yeah, um, the only warnings current uh, for, um, there's a marine warning uh, for uh, New South Wales, um, strong winds over the Eden coast at the moment. Um, and that's for today. And then um, they finally finalised the flood warning at the Orara River, which is uh, in the mid north coast. Um, and then some minor flood warnings along the Murray and over the north, um, over the northeast. But yeah, um, they look like to be stabilising.
2: And have we seen any large rainfall totals in the last twenty-four hours to report?
8: Yeah, um, in the last twenty-four hours, it has been there has been actually some significant rainfall, particularly over the northeast again, um, which is where all the weather's been lately. So uh, looks like we've seen um, anywhere between say twenty-five and up to uh, forty-five millimetres of rainfall, particularly over. Um, the northern tablelands and then into uh, like the Tweed catchments in the northern rivers. So, oh yeah, I, I guess and near the mid-north coast, so like near Dorigo and uh, near uh, Coffs Harbour as well. So yeah, um, some pretty decent, decent rainfalls, but um, yeah, I mean, nothing too unusual for this time of year.
2: And any coastal warnings to report?
8: Uh, yeah, just that marine warning um, for uh, for the um, stronger winds um, over the Indian coast today.
2: Okay, anything else we've brought to report, Dylan? No,
8: that's it. That's, it. that's it. that's all of us covered for the bomb today, I think.
2: Can we see some dry weather next week then?
8: Yeah, that's right. So it looks like generally, I mean, unless you're on or east of the ranges, particularly from Tuesday onwards, um, it looks like it's going to be pretty dry uh, for the next yeah few uh, yeah few days. So it looks like um, over the weekend, unless you're in the northeast, um, most parts will be fairly dry, and then some coastal showers developing on Monday through to Tuesday, but inland parts um, west of the ranges look to be dry for the coming um, outlook
2: okay thanks for that thanks dylan no worries.
8: okay cheers okay bye
2: that is dylan bird from the bureau of meteorology it is 25 to 2 on the country hour
5: on abc radio new south wales this is the new south wales country hour
2: Kim Honan with you. Well the federal government has ruled out taking action to resolve the port dispute between unions and port terminal operator DP World. But that's exactly what exporters and importers want. Joseph Sainer is chairman of the Horticultural Exporters and Importers Association and he runs a fresh fruit and veg business at the Brisbane markets. He told David Claughton that the port dispute is costing the import-export sector millions and will result in higher supermarket prices and poorer quality food in store.
11: Fresh produce, which is time critical, is being uh, held on the wharf or held up in loading these containers even prior to going to the wharf, which is um, affecting us in several different ways. One is the costs, additional costs incurred as a result of having store. The second thing is that the product is being delayed getting to markets offshore for exports into supermarkets for imports coming into the country uh, and those delays means that product is older and of course being perishable not not as good three if we particularly miss a market timing such as Christmas for imports as it was and we've got Chinese New Year first week of February uh, if our product is held up and misses those key times uh, then the value of that product is significantly less after those events, so uh, those are the sorts of issues we're finding
12: so can you put a a dollar value on what's you know the the impact of those delays at port
11: that's no, too hard to tell because the effects are are, are, are... Uh, like a ripple effect and that it's there's multiple touch points on the way through causing costs all the way through the supply chain so it's a seasonal thing so at the moment the main main concerns are for our summer fruits heading into Asia markets peaches nectarines and plums and uh, the delays uh, for those particular lines are coming out of Sydney and Melbourne but also some out of Brisbane and uh, when the growers and the exporters are concerned that the containers that have been loaded or are waiting to be loaded due to delays are going to miss the Chinese New Year market.
12: Right, and, uh, and that's where they get top dollar, yeah?
11: They get Well, that's when they get their best dollar and subsequently they, will, uh, they know what's going to happen because we've had this happen for different reasons in the past and the, the return to the farmer will be significantly less.
12: At the port, the unions are saying they've only got uh, like two-hour stoppages. So why is that causing such a problem?
11: All right, well, because it's just the volume. So the volumes of containers going through, If you you can't process it and get it onto the ships in time. So it's the transport operators, it's the quarantine facilities. Of course, it's the transport companies that are moving containers to and from the wharf. But it's also the shipping lines are hurting. Vessels are changing their schedules. So they're omitting ports, which means but a vessel that we thought was going to come to the Port of Melbourne is no longer coming there because the shipping line is having to relocate or reallocate their, their vessel. So it'll just go to Sydney and just forget about going to Melbourne. Mm. Well, and
12: now, just of, briefly for yeah. consumers, right? If I'm, a, I'm in one of the supermarkets, what will I be seeing in terms of imports into the country, stuff that, that, that won't be there or will be more expensive because of these yes. disputes?
11: So... Um, The the ripple effect is even stronger on imports because we have to use um, government quarantine inspectors uh, to bring goods in, which is fine. But then the delay in the vessel coming in means that booking is done with quarantine. That, That means a further delay waiting for those processes to happen. So the product is arriving on the shelf. One, more expensive because each individual effect on the supply chain increases the price. And two, the product is older. So the quality's down.
12: What's coming in and being held up at the moment? What, what particular fruit or vegetable is coming into Australia?
11: All right, well, uh, citrus is coming in, oranges, naval oranges and, uh, uh, from the United States is one of the ones that are being affected. Uh, we've got uh, avocados coming in from New Zealand. They're being affected. We're seeing some of, some of the palm fruits, apples and pears coming in from Asia. So these are, these are things that are basically counter-seasonal to us. So they're coming into the market to uh, to Australia and they're being affected at the moment.
12: So the federal government's ruled out some kind of intervention. So what do you think the solution is here? What do you want to see happen?
11: Well, I'd like to see the government actually um, intervene in a little bit more of a proactive way than they are. You know, it's it's pretty plain to see from the comments from the uh, From the industrial relations minister, that um, he 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 wants them to sort it out themselves.
12: Well, there is a process. Uh, So,
11: well, yeah, but the process has been going since September. How long do we wait for uh, for more? Look at the economic effects. uh are, are not uh nothing to be see- sneezed at if no one knows the exact numbers they're all talking huge numbers in millions of dollars per day but uh, the economic effects uh, are continuing so well,
12: who should give way then is it, are we talking should the union just maybe give up some of you know the, the top the bit of the cream on their wage claims or should dp the likes of dp world come to the table and uh you know provide a bit more for their workers to get things moving
11: Uh, as, as it usually is with the negotiations of this type, it's a combination of both. If they can't come together, then you need to bring an arbiter in. And if they can't even agree to come together, well, then you need to force them to bring the arbiter in and make a ruling. And so that's where the government should be, in my view, exercising their powers.
2: That is Joseph Sena, Chairman of the Horticultural Exporters and Importers Association, speaking there with David Claughton. It is 20 to 2 on the Country Hour. Well, Queensland's Premier Stephen Miles has announced a state parliamentary inquiry into grocery prices. Mr Miles held talks with executives from Coles, Woolworths and Aldi yesterday. He says they've agreed to appear at the inquiry
9: today i'm also announcing that we will hold a parliamentary inquiry into grocery prices i had productive meetings yesterday with the executives of coles woolworths and aldi they were good meetings and they were concerned about the concerns that i was raising with them Uh, they all agreed To participate in that parliamentary inquiry so they will all appear before that parliamentary inquiry and while my 30-minute meetings with them was useful i think that kind of detailed scrutiny by the state's parliament is fitting for the kinds of concerns that we've heard from queensland farmers and queensland consumers Uh, we're working on the terms of reference now the committee will be formed in the first sitting week of the parliament the supermarkets have also agreed to share more information with us and as much of that information that we can share with Queenslanders we will. Uh, we'll put that information together in a way that is transparent for Queenslanders so that they can get a better sense of why they're paying what they're paying at the supermarket and how and what farmers are getting for their produce at the farm gate. And as I've said, transparency and scrutiny is a key first step in both addressing the way our farmers are treated as well as delivering cheaper groceries for Queensland families.
2: The Premier also said he met with growers on Monday to discuss the issue of price gouging.
9: Spent the day meeting with farmer groups, uh, the QFF, Growcom, AgForce groups like that, uh, and they did share with me their concerns about how farmers were being treated. I've described some. I've described some of those stories as harrowing. You know, I've put on my Facebook today. Uh, ten dollar watermelon that a farmer is selling by the side of the road because he can't afford to sell it for the four dollars that he was offered by a supermarket it's a seven kilogram watermelon and that they're selling it for five dollars fifty a kilo in their stores they're the kinds of questions i put to the supermarkets uh... yesterday uh... some of them acknowledged the level of community concern about this topic That's why I've announced a parliamentary inquiry effectively into price gouging uh, and I certainly look forward to that kind of longer form opportunity for farmers to tell their stories, for mums and dads to tell their stories and for supermarkets to tell their stories and I hope that uh, it comes up with recommendations. Most of those powers now rest with the Australian Government but I know that ALBO is very focused on this too. So if our parliamentary inquiry identifies things that the Australian Government can and should do, I've got no doubt that the Prime Minister will be listening. Most of the powers rest with the Australian Government and I think it's entirely appropriate for the Queensland Parliament to collate the views and concerns of Queenslanders and put those to the Australian Government and I certainly intend that if the Parliamentary Inquiry says that Albo should do something, well, I'll go meet with him about it.
2: Premier of Queensland, Stephen Miles, announcing a, an inquiry into supermarket price gouging this morning. And you can find more on that on the ABC website. You can text me on 0467 Just as Jock has done, he says, Nemoy, the successful grower... Co-op has now totally fallen into the hands of a foreign company and how could that possibly be a good thing for the producer or Australia as a whole? It is nearing a quarter to two.
12: On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour.
2: Kim Honan with you in the chair for Michael Condon today for Friday the 19th of January we've just started one of my favourite seasons of the year here on the north coast of the state. Fig harvest has started at Southview Orchard at Hogarth Range west of Casino. Frida and John DeCluver's main crop is stone fruit, peaches and nectarines which are very popular among local consumers but there's also a strong demand for their figs and they join me in the studio a short time ago?
1: We started a week ago, um, a couple of boxes in the morning and they're a good size. Uh, The weather's been kind to us. I think we've had something like four to five inches over the last few weeks since the beginning of the year. That hasn't affected them. As I said, they're a good size and um, people are enjoying them. We're selling them at the casino, lions, farmers market on a Saturday morning and we may even get them into Lismore over the next few weeks
2: and what sort of variety are there are there different fig varieties Uh, we have black genoa um, for
5: our figs
1: we also have a white fig which is either a white genoa or a white Adriatic we still haven't decided which one it is we need some we need some expertise (laughs) on that one
2: how do those two varieties differ in taste
1: the white one's much sweeter Uh, The black ones are sweet, the black genoa is sweet, but the white one is a smaller fig, but a lot sweeter taste, sickly sweet.
2: And how many trees do you have and how many figs do you expect to get off them this year? Because it's a very limited season, isn't it?
1: It's a short season and it all comes back to the weather. Um, We've got 30-odd in one block, we've got another four in another block, and we've got 50 in the block down the back, which is just starting to develop. Um... Out of the 30 that are now at least 10 years old, uh, we hope to get somewhere in the vicinity of 4,000 figs off there, unless some of the birds get in, unless the chickens eat the lower ones. Or too and, much rain. And, yeah, the other one is um, if they, if we had four or five inches in a week, uh, they tend to dilute the sugar content and they become wishy-washy.
2: So you would be reluctant to sell them in that condition?
1: um they'd be still okay for jams but the money value is not there anymore yeah it's hard to sell them in in wet conditions
2: and what sort of demand are you seeing for the figs because there aren't that many local fig growers on the north coast
1: we sell out most weeks yeah
5: yes yes we do i mean like you know it's 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 not many growers around the area but like there are many people who love figs
2: and um you know it's it's a specialty i think and are you surprised there aren't more growers given it's such a delicious fruit
1: I'm um, speaking a little bit biased I, i'm happy there's not many more
2: <laughs> of course
1: <laughs> <laughs> look um they're not a difficult difficult plant um if you've got good soil you've got enough water you've got some pinto peanuts underneath um they don't need much food they don't need, need much care And you can pick figs once a year.
0: And like when we do the pruning, you can actually plant the fig out of the cutting. And, you know, you will have one or two, you know, trees at your backyard.
2: Why do you need, why do you recommend Pinto peanuts underneath as as a cover crop?
1: It's a legume. Um, It it chokes out most of the weeds. Uh, There's virtually no mowing involved. Uh, Once or twice a year, you might whip a snip if it gets too high. It's a good food source for the, for the figs, um, and it, if it's mowing, um, it, looks, it looks good.
2: What fascinates me about the figs is how they're pollinated. Figs is actually a flower. That's what I read. It's not a fruit. It's actually a flower inside out.
1: And pollinated by? Pollinated by,
2: by a wasps.
1: Wasps. Yeah, wasps do the pollination. Not but bees. The, the black genoa is self-pollinating. I've only found that out over the last few few years, but we do have wasps as well.
2: And how do the wasps pollinate the figs?
1: They go inside and they, they touch all the and then parts they of the actually flower. die
2: inside the figs. Yes, yes, that's that, what I find out. Mm, yeah. That interests me that people would want to eat figs after knowing or or seeing photos of the wasps dying inside the figs. What actually happens to to the wasp that, that dies?
1: quietly dissolved in the flower. <laughs> Another
2: protein. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's right. When the wasp dies, an enzyme called ficin breaks the dead wasp down into protein. That is Frida and John DeCluver from Southview Orchard at Hogarth Range, west of Casino. And they sell the majority of their figs direct to the local farmers' markets. You'll find them at the Casino Line Farmers Market tomorrow. Or they... Um, Uh, Have direct order as well. It is nearing 10 to 2 on the country hour. Well, the federal government has rejected an offer to settle the long-running live export class action. In 2020, a group of cattle producers, exporters and service providers won a class action in the federal court which found the former Labor government's 2011 decision to ban live exports to Indonesia was unlawful. In the years since, only the lead claimant, the Brett Cattle Company, has received compensation. This morning, the federal government rejected the remaining claimant's offer to settle the case for $510 million plus costs, which could have resulted in a total figure of more than $800 million. Anti-Cattlemen's Association President David Conley told Dan Fitzgerald he's extremely disappointed in the offer's rejection.
7: These are the continuing actions of a government hell-bent on punishing the rural sector, punishing those who didn't vote for them and will not vote for them, punishing those who don't believe the lies of this government and refuse to surrender to their cruel actions both past and present. Government declared themselves to be model litigants. The model litigant rules require government to, amongst other things, deal with claims promptly, avoid delays, pay out legitimate claims without further litigation, and limit scope of proceedings whenever possible. The government are not model litigants and the class is not holding up the proceedings. Mark Dreyfus this morning claiming otherwise is despicable and it's out of touch. This class action was won in 2020. The ban was in 2011. It was based on misfeasance, which is a very hard case to win. And the ruling scares the government for what they may face from other industries that they are destroying. There was a reckless indifference to the injury it would cause, despite the advice given. Government continue to play dirty tactics around the discovery and other measures in this case. Litigation should be about justice. But where the government is involved, uh, particularly this government, it is about votes and political power and an unlimited supply of taxpayer funds to continue to do this. So this is all about political power and votes, Dan. It's a grubby little sordid business this government is engaged in. They don't like rural Australia and they would rather be ordered to pay from the courts than be seen to be settling with these claimants.
11: Just going back to today's letter, there was no reasoning as to why that was rejected. You've just got a flat offer of no.
7: No, we just got some we got some weasel words that lawyers write. Um, with all due respect to lawyers, saying um, we don't uh, we don't accept your counter offer. Full stop. Goodbye. The government continues the cruelty to hardworking rural Australians caught up in this class with that letter, Dan. They're cowardly actions from a government that refuses to accept the consequences of their own actions. What what I'm worried about is how do I go back to all the claimants and try to explain what this government is doing to them? This action has been going on so long that some family members who commenced the claim have passed on and will never see they'll never see justice.
2: And that is uh, the president of the NT Cattlemen's Association, David Conley, speaking to our reporter, Dan Fitzgerald. It is 7 to 2 on the Country Hour. And uh, finally, today ahead of markets, the drop in lamb and sheep prices took many by surprise last year and the sudden upswing in prices is almost as surprising. At this week's sheep and lamb markets in the state's north, prices have doubled. Doubled on a month ago, Armidale Stock and Station agent Harry Phillips told Lara Webster the turnaround has lifted optimism among producers.
13: Yeah, first sale for us was the 16th of January, and um, oh, we're getting we're getting a lot of fresher lambs coming through, but also a lot more competition. Um, I think the end of last year that we just were all a bit bottlenecked, and now it's opened up. The markets have opened up, and they're all sourcing sourcing the better lambs.
4: Well, what kind of increase in price have you seen when you look at what you saw a month ago to, say, your last week of sales to, to this first week back?
13: I, I reckon we're nearly double where we closed. Uh, end of last year, we were $3.50 to $4.00 four dead for a trade in the heavy lamb, and now we're, now we're sort of $6.80 up to $7.50. So it's, it's nearly double. Oh, yeah, it's good. And, and also in the mutton price, like we're went back over two dollars so that's double as well.
4: Well I mean we know you mentioned there there's some more competition out there but what are some of the other factors at play here to see I guess what's been a, a bit of a surprising turnaround?
13: Well I think we're also seeing a few restockers. The south has had very very good rain um, and and also up here in the tablelands we've had a bit of summer rain and we've had a lot of um, producers put a put a summer crop in and so they've got fresh feed, so we're back into buying store lambs again. So that's putting pressure on the meatworks to, to to up their rate on those trade, trade lambs, which ultimately makes the heavy lambs dear as well.
4: Well, what are you hearing, Harry, from local producers uh, as they kick off 2024 a lot better than they ended 2023?
13: Oh, positivity. It's just great to have a, a positive yarn with everybody. Um, I mean, we had no rain end of last year. We've had rain, we've got feed prices have yeah nearly doubled so yeah it's positive and i think a lot of producers were considering getting out of sheep but but this turnaround will 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 keep them in for for a bit longer
4: well i was going to ask you to pull your crystal ball out uh and if you can forecast for me harry i mean what do you think the next few weeks might look like how do you think that might shape up will we see this trend continue
13: Oh gosh, I wish I had a pistol ball. <laughs> but um, but I, I, I strongly believe the mutton prices will will get better. Um, there's a big gap between the mutton and the lamb mm. prices, you sort of four to five dollars. So I think the mutton price will will keep increasing. I think we've seen a cap in the lamb price. Um, we see a we saw a big increase first second week back, but now we've come back to a level playing field. So I think we're gonna see consistency in the lamb price.
2: That is Armadale Stock Agent Harry Phillips speaking to Lara Webster with some good news on that lift in prices for both mutton and lamb, although mutton certainly still has some way to go. On the text line 0467 if you text me now, I might be able to get one in before the 2 o'clock news. Um, a question, how do the costs equal $300 million in that cattle case? question in there and also um shovel has uh texted that in 2003 in the meat judging in the us his little sister came back with the denver broncos cap for him because he liked john elway and he's also sent through a sister he has a photo of his sister from the um, meat judging comp from way back in 2003. let's head to the markets and let's take a look at those lamb prices with the results from griffith leanne dax good afternoon
14: good afternoon Eight thousand lambs and 2200 sheep sold at griffith active participation from all regular buyers following last week's scorching lamb sale prices have moderated significantly with prices decreasing 20 to 35 dollars despite this buyers showed solid competition but wouldn't exceed the 700 cents per kilogram carcass weight threshold. Lambs weighing 30 kilos and above fetched prices from 202 to 245 with an average of 695. In the 26 to 30 kilo category, lambs commanded prices between 174 and 213. Trade lambs, though limited in supply within each agent's offering, were traded at 130 to 170. Lambs suitable for feeding or returning to the paddock were valued between 108 and 133 35 light lamb suitable for processes sold within $80 to 118 shifting to the mutton sale heavy were trade to prices ranging from $83 to 115 trade types of mutton achieved 52 to 81 with an overall mutton average of 287 to 306 cents a kilogram carcass weight
2: i'm leon ducks for mla thanks leanne uh, from sheep to cattle with the results from the tamworth store cattle market stephen adams good afternoon
11: tamworth agents conducted their store cattle sale with 2048 head penned principally young cattle and approximately 315 cows and calves cattle sourced from the tamworth area as well as manila baraba armadale and Bendermere. quality fair to good with demand high buying competition from Canambal, cunabaraba and gloucester armadale and local Wiener steers to background is $670 to $1,240 per head, up $165. Wiener heifers $660 to $1,060, $94 per head dearer. Yelling steers $1,110 to $1,360, $48 to $1,19 per head dearer, and heifers $780 to $1,275, better by $71. Cows and calves sold to dearer trends, the top units, to $2,400, and ranging $1,360 to $2,400 per unit. Stephen Adams, MLA at
2: Tamworth. Great. Thank you, Stephen. And that's it for the Country Hour for today. And for the week, I have been Kim Honan in the chair for Michael Condon. More rural news online at abc.net.au slash rural. But right now it is news time and two o'clock.